here at the Empowerment Zone, we are all about the empowerment of the African-American and Latino communities. And part of empowerment is preserving our rich history and culture. And today I'm happy to have Nedra Deadweiler on who is talking about her work in heritage preservation. Welcome to the Empowerment Zone with Ramona Houston, where we zone in on black and brown relations and our journey to empowering our communities. Nedra is founder of the Save Your Spaces Festival, and she's interested in how communities of color in particular work to preserve their history and culture despite the changes that occur in our communities uh, due to gentrification. I hope you enjoy our conversation. She has some great strategies on how you as an individual or your organization can work to make sure that you preserve the history and culture of your communities. Here at the Empowerment Zone, we're all about community impact and community empowerment. And as many of you know, I am an American historian focusing on African-American and Mexican-American history and relations in the process of our two communities working together to create social change. And as a historian, of course, I very much I love public history. Public history is the intersection of history, culture, and community. And that is what we're focusing on today with our guest, Nedra Deadweiler. Hi, Nedra. How are you today? Hey, Ramona. It's great to be here. I'm doing excellent. Yes, well, welcome to the Empowerment Zone. I'm so happy that we're going to have the opportunity to discuss heritage preservation and your work as founder of Save Your Spaces and Civil Bikes, you have a bunch going on about, you know, community empowerment and and preserving history in various communities, particularly in communities that are seen as uh, which, which are marginalized. And so um, I'm really happy to have you here today. Thank you for for joining me. Oh, thanks for the invitation. It's, it's awesome to be here. <laughs> yeah, so tell me a little bit about yourself. I know you are an ATLian. It's few of y'all around here who are actually born and raised in Atlanta. I'm a Texas a, a Texas uh -huh. ATLian. And so tell me a little bit about yourself and your journey uh, toward heritage preservation. Sure. Um, yes, again, thanks for having me here, Ramona. Um, I'm excited to share, I guess, my story about why I'm doing um, this work of heritage preservation. I, um, like you said, I'm born and raised here in the South, and my family has lived here for generations. Growing up, um, Atlanta has changed significantly in the last 10 years, but really it's been like a 30-year process um, that... Um, as much urban renewal and say highway building and community sprawl happening all over the place that you can really see the effects of that. Um, it's a tremendous change since I was in high school and I started driving to places on my own. Um, Cause I did, I bust to school. I was in back in the 
high school, my high school in nineties, there were there was the minority to majority minority to majority. So I I bust to school, went to the north side of the county. I was living in the cap we lived in the cap county during those years. And um so I saw a lot of DeKalb County. My grandmother lived in Atlanta. Um, parents worked downtown. So it just really covered, we went to church in Cobb County. So I saw a lot of the, a lot of the city. Um, I grew up with deep relations in my extended family. So my grandparents, great grandparents, great aunts and uncles, uncles and aunts and, you know, et cetera. So I grew up hearing stories. I grew up hearing, um, you know, talking about way of life and culture and foods and how different people in my family were, what they were like, the things that they did. And so at the time, I never really connected that to the arc of African-American history, to Black history. Uh, I just saw it as my family but it was something that was very important to me. We spent a lot of time um, going back to middle Georgia, going up to Northeast Georgia. So we traveled to more rural areas at the time that are built up more now than they were then. And, um, and so that was always a part of my mind, uh, a part of my imagination. And um, I always kind of pondered what life was like. And there were very few, I would say, um, books or movies aside from, from Southern writers that explore that. So um, I never felt like I got enough information about it. And, you know, I put a pin on it. I wanted to study history when I went to college. I didn't do that. Um, I also wanted to be a painter. Like I wanted to do a number of different things but I ended up volunteering at a camp and I actually ended up doing that about five, about five years with Hemophilia of Georgia with Camp One O'Clock. And the first year, it was the most amazing thing I'd ever done. And, um, and it was, you know, being a, camp, a college age person, but these were younger kids. They were probably like middle school age, had bleeding disorders and that prevented them from having a childhood. And this was a week away at camp. And because nurses and doctors were there to care for them if they got injured, you know, they could have a bleed out and they could die essentially. Um, they were able to get um, the type of medical care that they needed um, at this camp so they could just play. And it was a lot of fun. And the camp counselor was a social worker. And I was like, if I can make a difference in a child's life like this every day of my life, this is what I wanna do. So I became a social worker. I have my undergrad and my and a grad degree in social work. Um, I did that for a number of years, but I was working in, I won't say but, I worked with adolescents, um, high school, young people. So those years, ages 12 to 24, which are tumultuous years. They're also wonderful years. Um, it's a lot that happens between those ages. And um, I think for me and the way that I am, I am built or constructed emotionally, after a while, I, I got burned out. And it wasn't from the young people. It was really from systems being um, unable to really accommodate and to support 
the young people and their needs. And um, I think that got a little bit overwhelming for me. And, and then additionally, I wanted to apply some of the skills that I had gained as a social worker in other areas, like using arts as a form of community development, using art as a form of building community um, and creating centers of beauty, centers of like holisticness, health care, fun, you know, learning, um, service. There's so many things that art can provide to a community. And I wanted to use, um, use the arts in that way. And, um, but I didn't know how to ask for help. <laughs> I didn't know where to go to ask for help or who. So I just went on a journey. I had already left um, at, at Georgia. I moved out of, of Georgia. I went to grad school to get my master's in New York. And so I lived in New York for six years and I moved to Seattle. But ultimately, 10 years later, I returned home. And so that journey of discovery, learning about myself, learning about the world around me, other cultures, because in the South, um, I mean, I'm, I'm a Gen X person and um, it, was very, it was pretty segregated. And it's not that it's not segregated now, but it was even more so. You didn't really see communities of um, other communities of color, um, like, in my school, I bused to, I went to Lakeside High School. So I, there were first generation kids from, whose parents were from, you know, all over the world, Asian, Latin, Hispanic, um, European, um, African, but um, they might've lived in that community. So whether it was in apartments, they lived in apartments or they lived on Beaufort Highway, which was still, I think, um, a part of the school district it it was like a small area was a part of the school district so some kids lived in a neighborhood pretty close but i never really saw what um, a hispanic neighborhood looked like but in new york city i mean you i could go to um little havana you know i could go to um puerto rican neighborhood and go to a dominican neighborhood i can um be in other areas like um little jamaica i mean it was like all west indians like it was it was everybody was everywhere chinatown um so i got a chance to really experience other cultures in the u.s and see what how people lived and th the way of life maybe it was americanized but it was still very much not american it wasn't southern it wasn't necessarily black. I want to say it wasn't Southern because there are black Southern people living in New York. Right. And even though they're very city, they're also very Southern. So, and it's a, it's a fun, it's an interesting, it's interesting to see um, that migration, you know, those migrational stories, right? Like see what that looks like um, on some years later and how communities, you know, shape and reform. Same thing on the West Coast and coming back home. But it was the coming back home and realizing um, what I had gained by moving away. And um, although I did have friends that were from different cultures, spoke different languages, had different home cultures, um, and we definitely connected. You know, we talked about our families and our, you know, what we did on holidays because we were different. Um, but I never 
I never necessarily realized that as a Black person in the South, me having friends who were Korean, Chinese, or Indian, um, how that might have made me different. But when I left and came back, my interactions with other Black people and also even white people, it was like that prepared me, I, I think, very well to understand some of the issues that are even happening today for people who are immigrants, um, you know, border crossing, border issues, detentions. Um, and, um, and also seeing how gentrification, how that changed Black communities across, um, across the country, but specifically where I lived in the communities. I didn't have language for it in the 2000s when I lived in New York City, but by the time I came to Atlanta, I knew that that was gentrification and what it felt like. And it had not occurred here to the extent that it is currently. Um, but I was, I, I came into public history really was a rim. I thought it was a remedy of, um, of coming to find understanding between people of different cultures, different heritages, and that if we could understand each other, you know, in place, you know, in different areas, understand specifically in Atlanta, Black history, Black heritage, um, that we would embrace, you know, the neighborhoods and communities and people who are living here. And that we, as a result of building community, we could be resistant to gentrification. So for me, public history was, it was about connecting and about community building. And I learned that it was public history after the fact. <laughs> <laughs> I went to school after the fact. Um, a lot of these things are just like exploring and just kind of following intuition and like a determination to, to, to basically bring some sort of restoration or healing or like, you know, touch on that part that hurts and the part that was hurting, I think um, for black communities is it, they've been isolated for a long time, haven't been invested in. And, um, but the, the culture that is there is so rich and undiluted that um, it almost has to be, it has to be protected it may buildings may not look beautiful, <laughs> you know, like there are some things that definitely need to change. Um, there are a lot of problems. There are definitely some struggles, but there's also a really rich culture and a heritage that persists in, in, in the, in black in historically black communities that, that need to be protected. And I think um, it's still, it still is definitely there. And I think public history um, and preservation are two tools to help um, to help to maintain that. And um, yeah, I think those are two tools that we have available. And at least those are part, some of the tools that I've chosen to really hang on to. You know, social work, you say that's where you started. Mm -hmm. I've always found that people who are in social social work really have the genuine desire to help others. And they go into it 
into some, my, my parents are both have degrees in social work and they go into it and they find that space like all of us do where we really want to impact others and your journey in going to different parts of the country and and being able to experience other cultures and other peoples uh really uh is a great introduction into the need you seeing the need to uh, work with different groups of people and all of our community's efforts to preserve our history and culture and heritage. Um, that's why travel is so important. And a lot of people don't realize that even in Atlanta, we can travel, right? We can travel and we can experience other communities. Now, in the last 30 years, Atlanta has truly become an international city where we can experience other cultures and we should encourage other uh, everyone, all of our listening audience to, if you cannot afford to travel for whatever reason, and that doesn't necessarily mean just financial, but for, afford in terms of time and energy uh, that it takes to travel, you can travel in your, in your home city to experience other um, cultures and, and people. So when you look at uh, Savior Spaces, tell me, why did you found Savior Spaces and Civil Bikes, uh, which are the two organizations you're founder of, and what, why did you create these organizations, and you know what do you hope to accomplish through them? Yeah, um, it's a very good question. And yes, social workers generally do have a big heart. <laughs> um, I started Civil Bikes first and I, when I left Atlanta, um, I was like, I was ready to get out of a car. I wanted to be more active. I was like, I, I want to get back to biking. I'd like to be able to walk places and take public transit. So it's essentially why New York was like the choice for me. Um, and then coming in, in Seattle, I did a lot of, lot more riding of a bike. Like I was on it all the time. Um, and so when I moved back here, I wanted to, it was harder to really get into, to do biking, but I wanted it to be a part of my life. And so my last job, um, I was actually, my last social work job, I was told that I didn't fit the culture. Um, I did a little too much advocating in a, in a job that wasn't advocacy based. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I didn't fit the culture. And um, so I was, you know, asked to leave. And I did, and um, I was on a trip to Alabama, who at the time were um, opening up their civil rights trail in, back in 2013. And this was like the buildup to it. I was on a press trip. I was not part of the press, but I was with a friend who was. And it was going to these sites and meeting. At the time, um, we were like, went to a barbershop. It was a reverend who had a barbershop. He was an elder, probably in his 70s. You know, mm -hmm. you, you walk into the barbershop, you see the old red leather barbershop yep. chairs you know, <laughs> with the metal foot plates and, mm -hmm. and like the, you know, I mean, it was just like a blast from the past. I, did I walk onto a movie set? <laughs> he had newspaper clippings all over, photographs. Mm -hmm. Like I was walking into a museum. I was walking into... Um, this elder black man, Reverend, who was also a barber, you know, t from the time we walked in to the time we left, 
He was telling us story after story about everything, you know, we asked a question or looked at or before we could. It was just like nonstop. Amazing. Amazing. Like I was <laughs> shivering. <laughs> yes, I was I had chills. Like it was, it was like a bright moment. Um, we went to University of Alabama, Tuscaloosa, where they desegregated the college for the first black students there um, and saw some photos and um, other memorabilia. Then we went to a safe, what had been a safe house for Dr. King during the movement that was out in Greenwood. And um, Teresa Burroughs, Mrs. Teresa Burroughs, she's now deceased, but she had been a child soldier, child foot soldier during the movement. And um, she she was the one who, um, you know, was the curator, the, the docent. She was she was the museum. It is still there. The Safe House Museum is still there. But she told us uh, again, it was like story after story. And it was so what did you learn from this tour in Alabama? What, um, what, what was it that you gained out of it that inspired you to uh, yeah. save your spaces? Well, it was it was really what started me with civil bikes. Um, Save Your Spaces came most recently, but it was the encountering of the firsthand narratives of folks who lived history and um, having them talk about what they saw, what they heard, what they did, the reasons why, what it meant for them. That you know that making of meaning, which is part of um, public history. Um, code of ethics, you know, the belief and that giving me that shared, they were sharing authority. So shared authority, sharing um, meaning making, as well as um, thinking about this history and connect me, making my own connections, listening to her tell stories. Cause I mean, I heard things from my grandparents as well. Um, it was just, it was like, for me, a light bulb went off and that um, this would be fun to do because we were in a car. It'd be fun thing to do on a bicycle. I love it. And so you did it for Atlanta. So that's where Civil Bikes came and from. And that's where Civil Bikes came from. We ended up doing walking tours because someone contacted me and was like, I'd love to go on a tour with you, but I don't ride a bike. It's like, okay, we can do this. However, it needs to be done to, to make this work. And so that's why Civil Bikes started. And again, it goes back to that we can make connections and build connections in place, learning about history and place will preserve this place, these places, these spaces, and we'll keep them not only the heritage and the, but also the people like this is our community. So, um, you know, people will take action and make, you know, make this a community, not just move in and change and rename, but make these communities and connect with the people who live in the communities and make it their home. So, um, and now, you know, fast forward to the future, Save Your Spaces came out of, um, I had attempted to do some preservation activities with civil bikes, but for a lot of people doing um, preservation activities with civil bikes was like, it didn't seem to go together. For other people, how they saw what civil bikes was or should be, it didn't fit the narrative. And so as a result, I ended up starting another organization because I was really trying to um, engage, you know, um, at the core, other black people around 
our history around our historic spaces and um, build, which was harder to do with something called civil bikes. Um, I also wanted to gauge other people, Black, Indigenous, people of color, queer people, um, the same communities that whose histories I either would have talked about or engage, have uh, folks from those other um, communities that have been oppressed to talk about, you know, share their history under um, their lived experiences with me, you know, not me sharing, you know, again, it's like people who live the history have the most experience and should be the ones sharing that history. Um, so really like co-designing other events with other people, groups, organizations when opportunity presented itself. Um, and Save Your Spaces was an opportunity, one, to put the saving and these spaces together. Um, Cause I had been doing a hashtag preserve black space for a long time. Um, but, it, and it also put the ownership, you know, it like empowered, they empowered you, like <laughs> you must do this. Um, it really kind of was a directive as well as, you know, a place to build a rallying point, a cry. Um, because at this point in time in 2023, I've been back home now 13 years and Atlanta has changed significantly. There's a loss of public space. Um, there's a selling of like off of historic resources. Many buildings are being developed, redeveloped. Um, there are cranes everywhere in the skyline and neighborhoods um, are gentrifying at a rapid pace. And I think development is great. It's great that people are wanting to be in Atlanta. I, I also think that um, there have to be, there need, there must be um, ways to care for the people who are here, create opportunities of housing, um, adequate jobs, and um, you know, support public education in a way that is really creating students who are able to think and to be able to have their own independence intellectually, you know, in, in life and in society and not just test their way through school, but to really gain some, um, you know, fundamental skills, which will allow anyone to be successful, um, you know, in what they de desire to do. Um, you know, this intersection, I, I really like you talking about the difference between civil bikes and savior spaces because civil bikes is more about listening and understanding someone else's history, right? If you're I mean, doing these bike tours and you're actually engaging, is that what you're doing is trying to get people um, to really understand? It's like, yes, I want people to understand um, the way I talk about civil bikes is that, yes, I am sharing knowledge, but I am not a talking head, right? So I want people to, you know, we are to have a conversation about these histories. So I allow, I mean, it's like, it's an opportunity to ask questions. Um, it's an opportunity to engage even other people because we make stops. You know, sometimes we go to businesses, we've gone to cultural spaces. People on the streets, you know, on the sidewalk will definitely chime in if they're curious enough and want to say engage as well. So, um, so it's engaging other communities with different communities through. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because, right. I mean, right. Because this is not I mean, it's not isolated. You know, Atlanta is not isolated and these happenings aren't isolated events. 
I mean, there are, so there are Mason lodges all over the place, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, there right. are highways bisecting black communities yep. across yep. the U.S. So Atlanta is not a phenomenon. Um, it is sort of, we, we, there may be different people, different time periods, different things that happen because of migration might've been different or how people arrived and how they left or, um, you know, there's all kind of caveats. But as you know, as a hist- as like, you know, a historian, but um, there are a lot of similarities. So if someone is Black or not Black, um, but, you know, it's like that point of discovery in a sense of not discovery like Columbus, but like that internal point of discovery where people can realize and have a, a meaningful connection to a history here, but also to a to um, a point of a site of you know a site of consciousness consciousness raising where they come from too. Um, and I mean, I know I had those points, those realizations when I lived in other places. And I know people who come on tours. They talk about you know back home. There's you know there's this place, and it people share you know their stories or their lived experiences. And so it, it really sensitizes people to other people's cultures, right? Yeah, and other people's yeah. communities and gives them an appreciation and mm-hmm. the opportunity to, to your point, to engage. It's not mm-hmm. about just you telling the history or this other person giving a one side story. They're actually at, uh, have the opportunity to engage these spaces and these sites. Mm-hmm. So looking at the savior spaces mm-hmm. and your attempt to preserve histories right, in community, Mm -hmm. culture. Tell us, you know, what do you think people can do, all right, who want to engage in uh, saving spaces? Because here at the Empowerment Zone, we're all about not just educating, but giving people the calls to action that can help them to preserve their communities. And um, as you know, and as you've stated, you know, we have the destruction of all these different communities all around the country, right? Uh, Gentrification through, like you said, restructuring and renaming, renaming and all of this. uh, What, 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 what can we do as people who believe in community empowerment and preserving the history and culture and heritage of communities? Yeah, thanks for asking that question because it's a big question and, you know, have to start off like in small ways. And I would say save your spaces. It's a skill share. So people are sharing knowledge. When we have a class, we just had our big festival, our annual festival, and folks who are leading projects um, or who are professionalized in some way are sharing their experience so that folks can learn how, how, you know, even learn ways and, and apply it. Um, and so on that question of what are some things that people can do, I think one is realizing that the loss of community, the loss of people who used to be neighbors are no longer neighbors, that that creates what's called root shock. Dr. Mindy, Mindy fully loved. She has a book titled Root Shock. She coined that phrase as what is left people who are experiencing displacement, people experiencing gentrification, that's what it creates. So it's not just a physical reality, it's also emotional, it's also mental, it's spiritual, people lose their community, lose their connections. 
So there's like, there's a need to reform community, form a new community, how to maintain those connections with people who are lost. So those are some things, you know, that relationship building, moving into a neighborhood. Yeah, it's fresh to the person who's moving there, but people who have been there. So building across sameness or difference. It was me, even though I'm from here, I didn't grow up in a neighborhood that I lived in. My dad had lived in this neighborhood as a as a young person. But um, those, I mean, those people are gone. And it was very hard for me to connect to my neighbor who had been here for like 30, 40 years. Um, she didn't want to connect to me. So um, no matter how hard I tried, but there was another neighbor across the street who's no longer here that and other people on the street. So it's like, even if one person find other people in a neighborhood and try to build relationship, um, understand the history of the neighborhood. Um, and then for those who want to go deeper, um, make sure that those stories and narratives are recorded and so documentation is something that's very important and recording it in the way that people who live that history would approve. So you can do oral histories, um, oral histories of people who want to share their stories. People may not want to share their stories. I've asked a neighbor to share her story and she said she did not want to for, the, her, re for her very specific reasons, which I respect. Um, so even if people do not want to share their stories, if you learn things that of people who live in a neighborhood or things that happen in a neighborhood or certain sites, and it doesn't just need to be significant. I mean, in preservation, there's like, you know, this thing about significance and, um, and also um, there are, you know, various standards and regulations um, but when you're preserving something for posterity versus for, to say, be on a national registrar, um, you can preserve things, I will say, differently. If you can reserve, preserve it at the highest standard, go for it. If all the documentation is there, do that due diligence. Um, but for communities that have been um, underinvested in, it may not be... a, a that is doesn't need to be the standard and the quality. It it needs to be something that reflects the people's lives, their lived experiences, the type of even knowing the house types that are in communities. That's you know one way. Knowing when people came to the community, where they lived, what you know what the way of life was like. So just doing some recording of those type of things, um, taking photographs is also another good way of knowing what is there um, before before things change so that there can be a memory log. Um, there are some, um, for black communities, there are archives. I do have, um, which we won't get into here, like um, various challenges that I have for um, say libraries, archives, institutions, um, preservation organizations that they need to have the type of care they need to extend to um, oppressed communities. And there are definitely some that are, you know, trying to, um, but I will say that there are Black archives that are in the city of Atlanta, um, Auburn Avenue Research Library, which is akin to Schaumburg, 
they've dedicated, you know, it has, their holdings are for African-American heritage and the archivists who work there are familiar with the resources that are within their archive. So if you're trying to find out more and connect, you know, like what are some of the resources, go to an archive that, or learn about um, archivists who understand black heritage. They could be at one of the colleges. A lot of times college and universities will have a library. They do have archives because they use, I mean, students do a lot of research at institutions. And so there may be some information there that could help with learning more about your community and the community, what you are gathering could also become a resource for those communities as well. I mean, for those institutions as well. So a lot of it is um, building relationships, um, learning documentation strategies and doing some documentation, even if it's you know, using your phone to take photographs um, I wish I would have done taken more photographs, taken more photographs in my neighborhood. Um, and that's a whole nother story as well, why I didn't. Um, but looking back, you know, it's knowing that you have the right to do these things too, and that the power is yours and taking it and not feeling like, well, somebody else should do that. No, you are the person to do it. So get out there and do it. Whether you feel like you fail or not, it's not about failure. It's really about taking care of your community and preservation is a form of community care. So Nedra, tell us what schools did you attend? What were your majors and degrees? And what strategy would you give students to ensure that they're successful in college? So I went to all PWIs. <laughs> I went to the University of Georgia. I have a bachelor's in social work. Um, I went to New York University. I have a master's in social work. And I went to Georgia State University and I have um, a degree, master's of heritage preservation. I would say one strategy, what is one strategy? Um, one, I think it is relationship building on campus and knowing um, who works, who someone who works for the institution that can be a supporter. Um, that's one because maybe it's the counselor, um, you know, maybe it's someone in the admissions office, um, someone in the student center, African American Student Union, or one of your instructors, but someone that you can connect to that can be someone that is supportive of you as a student and about your journey, and that will encourage you and also really challenge you to follow um, follow your path and not just give in to something that's easy or, you know, just to get a job, but really who is interested in your intellectual development, because it's going to, you know, going back to those fundamentals, knowing how to read, knowing how to write <laughs> and knowing how to do math and, um, will be, is really the, is, and writing, you know, grammar. So get the getting those basic skills. So I'm gonna give two. Those basic skills are also gonna be the ones that 
if you're unsteady in one or the other, go ahead and take some extra classes, um, you know, do some extra work, even if it's remedial so that you become stronger and that will make you a, a successful student and it will also help you to um, be more successful outside of school because um, every skill that you have as a person, you're gonna utilize it in your adult life and your working life and you know, soft skill and hard skills are very much um, always in play and it makes you um, a better candidate or I won't say better, but like a candidate who um, that people will find beneficial because you have other resources than just what is um, required. You have those like top line skill set. Those are great pieces of advice, Nedra. Uh, for all of you who don't know, PWI stands for Predominantly White Institution. So the advice that Nedra has is make sure you develop those relationships on campus, especially with someone who can be a supporter and an advocate and has your interest in mind. Make sure you develop those basic skills, know how to read, write, and do math, and of course, develop those hard and soft skills as well, which will make you uh, much more efficient uh, as an individual professional and also uh, make you uh, a better and more interesting candidate for all those opportunities that you pursue. Thank you so much, Nedra. It's a pleasure having you. Thank you, Ramona. I enjoyed being here. A special thank you to the incredible team of the Empowerment Zone. Terry Gully, theme song, NADWorks, digital support, and of course, our featured guest, 